And now we arrive at the last topic we're going to discuss in this particular podcast series. We've covered a lot of ground about the American South. We've talked about its literature. Uh, we've talked about its economy. We've talked about gender, gender roles, race, so forth and so on. But there's one topic that hangs over everything. And arguably, it's one of the most important topics because of how near and dear it is to uh, Southerners' hearts. It is something that forms the basis of many people's identity across the region. And I've, as a Southerner, often heard people quip that uh, the first thing that Southerners will ask you is your name, and the second thing they will ask you is what church you go to. And I think there's something to that, because that's been largely my experience in the, the South as well. So let's talk about what religion is in the South. And as a part of this conversation, and this is more so for the second episode in, in this little series of uh, on religion, uh, we're going to talk about politics as well, because inevitably, politics and religion are mixed together in the American South. Let's get started. In order to start that conversation, let's actually go north first. Let's talk about the Pilgrims and the Puritans. And so these individuals arrived around the Massachusetts region uh, at 1620 and then 1630, and they came for, well, you guessed it, religious reasons. Um, the Pilgrims arrived in 1620, and when they disembarked, they were actually originally supposed to be in the area of Virginia, but they found that they had navigated a bit too far north and that they were having trouble navigating further to the south. This is one of the reasons that uh, they came up with the... the um, uh, Plymouth Compact because they were essentially saying, well, you know what, our our original charter was for, again, a little bit further to the south. We're not totally sure if we're, you know, okay here. So let's, uh, let's come up with a new way that we can frame everything. And so they settled into that region and they, again, wanted religious freedom. Uh, William Bradford's personal logs, I guess you could call them personal journal, accounts for this. And he goes to great lengths to talk about how religion had affected him and his group. Uh, when the uh, when 1630 rolled around and, and then you get the, uh, the Puritans that arrive, you know, we tend to think of the Puritans in terms of religion. So they settled into the region. Rhode Island was founded as a matter of, you know, a sort of a religious haven with lots of religious freedom for many people. And so you can see that the North was founded on um, these principles. It's sort of woven into the very identity of the early people who arrived in that area. And I want to draw attention to that because one of the biggest misperceptions that I see every single semester is, you know, in the assignments that I give, I'll have students write things like, everybody came to the New World for religious freedom. And what has happened is that students are conflating those who arrived in the North and the stories that we tell ourselves as a nation about those individuals with what has happened in the South. And I was very careful a second ago to give the dates, 1620 and 1630. And if you'll think back to what we studied earlier um, in the podcast series and in the semester, or however you want to call it, um, you'll remember that the Jamestown colony was 1607. So the Jamestown colony preceded the arrival of these other individuals by over a decade. So we're not even talking that it's close. Um, there are arguments to be made as to why this happened. I uh, tend to fall with, uh, I believe it's James Horn that argued that, uh, that the reason that we remember the North and not the South in terms of this is because of the American Civil War. 
when we were sort of writing our nation's history after the American Civil War, we chose to celebrate more of what the North was than the South because the South had been the aggressor in those that particular conflict, uh, or that because they had again uh, separated out from the rest of the nation. That's what would make them the aggressor in, in such a conflict. And by the way, I'm clarifying that because I know other people are going to say, "Well, wait a minute, the North invaded the South." Yes, that is true, but that was in reaction to South Carolina seceding. So that's why I would label it in this particular way. But anyway, to, to move forward, uh, this is one of the reasons why we tend to remember our history in the way that we do. And that I want to draw attention to that because, again, that's a misperception um, that, you know, the uh, the pilgrims and the Puritans, when they arrived, that this is the, the first instance of people arriving in the new world. It's absolutely not. The Spanish have been here for over 100 years at that point. Um, they had institutions founded out to the West. They had preceded the colonists again in the Jamestown area um, by a couple of you know years because they had set up in that area and then some of them had been slaughtered. Um, they had done some of their own slaughtering in places like St. Augustine in Florida where uh, they slaughtered French Huguenots. So you can see that religion had been a part of it. People had been in the area. And again, that brings us back around to Jamestown. Now let's look at what religion was like in Jamestown. So I think John Rolfe is a really good example of uh, what religion was like in the Jamestown area. John Rolfe, I hope you'll remember, was the husband of Pocahontas. Again, John Smith was not the, the husband. There was no romantic interest there. For more information, I would say go listen to the other season um, for my English 231 class where I talk extensively about that. But uh, John Rolfe is a good example because he arrived and wanted social mobility. And he, he got social mobility by becoming a successful tobacco planter. He realized that uh, some of the original aims of the colonists, which, you know, things like, hey, we want to find gold, we want to find resources, we want to find a passage to the Pacific Ocean, uh, were not going to necessarily play out. But if you uh, planted in the soil and you, you grew uh, materials, you know, tobacco, indigo, rice, uh, and I'm, I'm saying this not necessarily from the perspective of just that colony, but over the history of the South, that there was uh, there were many riches, I should add cotton in there too, there were many riches to be found um, that could be harvested and sold to other regions. Now, we talked about that as part of the, the economy of the South, but now let's draw that into the, the religion of the South. I hope you can see from that story that I'm not talking about religion when I'm talking about, you know, the reasons that people are coming here, people like John Rolfe. This is not to say that it excludes religion. These were definitely religious individuals, but they came here as a way to uh, to further themselves in the world. Um, sometimes that did involve selling uh, stocks or selling uh, investments on the basis of, hey, we're going to go over and, you know, convert people or we're going to go over and carry our religion to the new world. But this was not the primary focus. Uh, some of the other episodes that we've discussed to this point indicate that people were here to plant as extensions of some of the Caribbean holdings that were out there. Uh, that plantation model had been carried over into places like the Carolinas, uh, uh, South Carolina, for example, up into Virginia. And again, you can see just in very, very broad terms, that is not the focus. The focus is to, uh, to plant, to harvest, and to make money. And so that's why some of these early colonists came. They wanted to be able to, um, to again, further themselves in the world, not necessarily for religious functions. 
And those that arrived in the region are not what we would think of as uh, the same religion today. They're not, they were not Baptist, they were not Methodist, um, they were not even necessarily Catholics. It's not to say that these individuals did not arrive in the region. I'm, again, just speaking in fairly broad terms. And in those fairly broad terms, uh, there were a great number of Anglicans that arrived in the region. Now, the Anglican faith emerged out of uh, England, and this was something that came from King Henry VIII, who was, it was quipped that he was a really humble guy. Um, he, uh, he wanted to make sure that he obeyed and, and did out all the things that he should do, which is extreme sarcasm because he was none of those things. Um, King Henry VIII, as you'll know, or hopefully remember, is uh, the guy who repeatedly married different people, had some of them killed because he was in pursuit of a son. He wanted a legitimate heir to his throne. And the irony is that he did have an heir to his throne who is uh, very well remembered to the present day. And this was uh, Queen Elizabeth. But he wanted a son because that's you know how uh, things were passed down at the time. So when he decided that he was going to get a divorce, um, you know, one of his first divorces, I think the first, very first divorce, and it wasn't granted. He did what any normal, humble guy would do. He completely broke away from the church, founded his own church, and put himself at the head of it and said, I'm going to make my own rules. And uh, this is what turned into the Anglican faith. And the Anglican faith then is a bit of a weird mishmash between Protestantism and Catholicism and the fact that it has some of the pageantry and structure of Catholicism, but it's not quite as strict um, in, in some senses, it, it's sort of a little bit more loose. The Book of Common Prayers, for example, um, is not in Latin, and it, it seeks to be accessible to the common person. So these were the individuals that arrived in the region, and the, this was, again, their faith. And so you have a good number of you know plantation owners and, and uh, farmers and things like that. The plantation owners really kind of benefited from the Anglican faith because by being a part of it, uh, they they were folded into an overall hierarchical structure. The structure itself, as you can, uh, I hope you noticed just a second ago, if you have the King of England at the very head of this, um, and then the Bishop of Canterbury as the, the second, then this is a structure that reinforces the social structure itself as well. It means that those in the lower classes are not necessarily, uh, it's not that they're unwelcome, it's just that they're not necessarily the focus of, of uh the care that such a church would give. And so when the when this faith arrived in the New World, um, it was not very well suited to the environment. The conditions here were harsh. Um, in the South, there was the period, uh, I believe I had mentioned it before, called weathering. And this is when uh, people would show up and they would have to adjust to the climate because, quite frankly, the, the climate of the American South is harsh, um, even more so now than in the past uh, because the temperatures are, are higher. I can remember... I believe it was about four or five years ago as of the making of this podcast that we had something like a month and a half straight of over 100 degree temperatures every single day. Uh, again, so it's not for the faint hearted. Uh, it is a, a difficult place to live. And especially if you're going to show up and you're going to try to continue to wear lots of clothes and armor like some Europeans would choose to do. Uh, so again, to, to wrap the back around though, the Anglicans are not well suited to helping people in that environment because they have more of a, a structure than do uh, other, other groups. And this means that those who are a part of the church, those who are administering from the church, have to have an education. And uh, to get that education is a long, arduous process. And then to be sent to the new world is, is uh, 
really to be condemned to the new world for these individuals. Because again, think about all the things I just said. If the church itself is part of the hierarchy, it takes lots of education. Then this means that these are people from a fairly upper class um, or more privileged type of life. And to be sent to what they would have seen as a backwater uh, colony where they would have to administer to you know people who were not prestigious, who were not rich and who did not necessarily have connections, again, was something of a punishment. Our textbook in the class, which again is uh, Southern Culture and Introduction by Beck and others, notes that there were something like six priests who had to administer to several hundred thousand individuals across the region. That's never going to be effective under any circumstances. And then if you compound that with the fact that people resented having to go to church, but they were forced to go to church because not going to church meant that you not only ignored uh, God, you also ignored your king. Because again, if the king is the head of the church and you're not participating in the church, then that means that you're not really doing your job. So when people did go, they resented having to go. And oftentimes, uh, you know, people would not take it seriously. They would uh, just sit in the back and, you know, do something like get drunk. So again, <laughs> not an ideal circumstance. And I hope you can see from this brief sketch that the South is not based on religion at this point. It had actually quite a rough start because of these sorts of conditions. So to further compound this, we get to the, the point where the Enlightenment is really kicking into gear around about this time. And one of the best examples I can think of would be Rene Descartes. Uh, he is the guy, you, know, you probably know him from the t-shirt that you've seen people wear before, I think, therefore I am. It's one of the, the most quoted things of all time. It's sort of everywhere. Um, cogito ergo sum, I believe, is, is its summary in Latin. But Descartes did what any soldier would do. He was a soldier. Uh, when they get bored, he locked himself in his room and he decided, I'm going to prove um, something to myself. I'm going to prove anything. And so he looked at mathematics and he was like, yeah, maybe these numbers don't really add up. How can I ever be sure? Right, if we get into pure mathematics, that might be one of those situations where I can't prove that numbers actually are real. I can't prove that that's actually the color red. I, I think it's the color red, but as he put it, there might be demons tricking me. Um, I can't prove anything. He went down the whole list. And he said, well, actually, hang on. I can doubt all of these things. And if I can doubt, I must have the ability to think. And if I can think, therefore, I must exist. So therefore, I think, therefore, I am. And that's how he proved his own existence. Um, from that, he attempted to... Uh, define God and, and to prove God. In short, the argument was something along the lines of, if I can think, I can conceive of things. And if I can conceive of things, I can conceive of something more perfect than I am. I myself am not perfect, so something else must have put that thought into my head. Uh, if there is an idea of perfection in the world, that must be God. And so therefore, God is but the idea of perfection in my head. Therefore, God must exist. Now, there are some problems with that, obviously, such as, you know, how do you know that it's a benevolent God or even the God that, you know, something like the Bible who put those thoughts into your head? So, you know, there's a whole range of problems uh, with this. But that type of logic illustrates the thinking that the Enlightenment would do. We can rationalize our way to anything. Benjamin Franklin said it, uh, you know, over 100 years after Rene Descartes when he said, you know, it's such a wonderful thing to be a rational creature. I can rationalize my way to anything. Um, and that kind of thinking, though, does not in any way comfort people. So if you are, you know, a, a poor person who has come over and you're going to work on a plantation 
and your life is hard and it's full of you know, tragedy. You have children dying young because there's a high mortality rate. And the, the local priest, uh, of, uh, excuse me, Anglican training or, you know, any other training of that sort is saying, you know, hey, I can prove that God exists. Isn't that neat? That doesn't really do anything to comfort you. And so as some of the individuals from places like Ireland and Scotland and, and some from England as well came over, these, these new lights came over and they had very different ideas and they would listen to the thinking of the Enlightenment and they would say, yeah, that's, that's neat. That's kind of cool, but check this out. Maybe you just can't understand God. Maybe God is too complicated. Maybe um, he's too complicated for mortal minds. And from that particular perspective, we say that uh, God is a mystery. And so, the, you know, that kind of thinking and art turns into the romantics. Uh, these would be people like Nathaniel Hawthorne or uh, Poe. You know, both of those are dark romantics, but it's still that idea of there's something undefinable, something that we cannot grasp in reality. And this is a direct reaction to the Enlightenment. And so what emerges out of this is, again, on the flip side, you have uh, sort of the roots of Baptist as they are, as they exist today, and that type of thinking, that, that reaction. God is something, someone mysterious, and we cannot fundamentally explain his existence. There are seeming contradictions, and they are seeming contradictions because we ourselves are limited creatures. So when Rene Descartes can prove God's existence, you know, by these these sort of almost mathematical logical proofs, uh, we say that that's that's a fool's errand. Instead, you should just attempt to, um, I, I don't know how else to put it, bask in who God is. Okay, now why does all of this matter? It's because again, I'm trying to give you the overview like I've done with the rest of the podcast. And in order to understand the next step, you have to understand that background and that context, because I'm talking in very, very broad terms here. This brings us then to the Great Awakenings. I'm going to just say plural. Um, yes, we get to the First Great Awakening, which precedes the American Revolution. Uh, but the First Great Awakening is that that movement I was just talking about a second ago. God is mysterious. He can't be understood, um, but he does care about me. He cares about you know my suffering. Uh, Jesus has come to the world and he has died for my sins. And if you are one of these people who live in the South and you have this short, harsh life where every day is the same, you wake up and you struggle against the landscape and you struggle against it in order to be able to, to eat food, um, this gives you a sense of hope and a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging. And these ideas begin to spread like wildfire, really not just across the, the South, but across uh, a good number of the colonies. The first great awakening is a kind of dress rehearsal for the American Revolution. The colonies prior to this had seen themselves as separate and individual. In the First Great Awakening, it doesn't unite them by any stretch of the imagination, but it gives them a kind of communal sense of, of belonging because if everybody's um, you know, talking about God in this particular way and everybody's uh, communicating across these distances and with some excitement about these ideas, this uh, creates a sense of not just, well, okay, we're Carolinians and you're from Massachusetts. This gives a sense of, hey, we all maybe have something in common. Maybe not all of us, but a good portion of us have something in common because of this religious fervor that's sweeping across the region. And so we, in a part of this, as a part of this, I should say, you get uh, a good number of individuals that begin to emerge. Uh, so you get somebody like George Whitefield. And George Whitefield emerges at this time, uh, and he's kind of like the rock star 
preacher that you've never heard of before. Some people estimate that he spoke to uh, well over something like three quarters of the colonists during this particular time period as he went about spreading these ideas. He was a former Anglican priest. Uh, he was a bit of a cross-eyed guy, but he he gave so many lectures that or so many presentations that somebody, some people imagine that he had to give something like three or four a day in order to be able to meet the numbers that he did. Uh, in fact, people like Alado Equiano mention him. Um, he's, he's, Benjamin Franklin mentions him. He's very widespread and very well known. But again, he's probably not the person that you know of, but he's a good example of how these ideas went about being spread. So this kind of dress rehearsal, this unification begins to take place, and it gives people that sense of purpose. And that leads us to the next thing, the next big hurdle about uh, concerning how religion took hold in the American South. Okay, and that hurdle is actually based on some of the things that I just discussed a second ago. If God loves everyone equally and without reserve and without measure, there's an implication there. And the implication is that that means that God loves women, that God loves those who are in bondage, that God loves men. And that puts everyone on completely equal footing. The reason I save religion until the very end of the semester is because that means that you'll have all the tools you need to understand why things happen the way that they did. In the gender section, we talked about the particular gender roles that people played and how men were the head of the household and they were responsible for everything. And women were to be um, honest and submissive and uh, to make sure that they were pure and chaste at all times, whereas men did not have to follow those principles. So in hearing this, I, I hope that you kind of understand fully why it is that men did not like this, but women and those people who were in bondage did. It appealed to them because this meant that they actually were indeed equals. Because if God loves everyone equally, then that means that there should be no barriers between people because people should all be treated equitably. That was a bit of a uh, hurdle because it meant that women and again, those in bondage were going to churches and men were not. Men were worldlings and uh, women and slaves were uh, those of the church. That nearly collapsed things. Um, men began to forbid their wives and husbands, you know, fathers began to forbid their daughters or wives to go to church. Uh, they would prevent those people who were, uh, who were their slaves from learning about religion. Um, though Frederick Douglass comes after the American Civil War, uh, excuse me, after the American Revolution and just prior to the American Civil War, he still notes that there is a reticence there to allow people to uh, study religion. And we've talked about that in the race section as well, that uh, people were no longer allowed to convert to Christianity and then earn their freedom in that particular way. So religion is tied up in, in this way with many, many other things. In order for the church to be able to overcome that, they had to make slow changes. First off, they couldn't just encourage men to, uh, to be passive. As you can see, again, I hope from the gender section, men were never passive in the South. They are, there was always this sense of an eye for an eye. This was tied in with the Scots and the Irish. Uh, you can still, as I mentioned then, see that today up in the mountains. You know, they don't cross the wrong people. Uh, that's uh, part of the English culture as well that settled along the Piedmont and the coastal regions of uh, places like Virginia and then down into the Carolinas as well. 
But uh, when it comes to religion, that was one of the things that religion had to adapt to. And I'm, of course, again, talking about Christianity, I'm talking about the Protestant faith. It had to adapt that. And so what it did is it stopped encouraging men to turn the other cheek and instead began to encourage them to see themselves as warriors of God. And we still, by the way, see that somewhat in the church today. Men are, uh, you oftentimes hear a male preacher of a Baptist denomination say things like, you know, I was once a sinner and I, I drank and I, you know, chased after women and things like that. But then God came to me and he saved me. And I'm here to tell you and to help save you. And I have to tell you, I've, I've heard sermons like that before. I've heard open air preaching. Um, I attended UNC Charlotte and, you know, there's a guy that goes out there and he preaches very much like that uh, quite frequently. And so you get individuals presenting that kind of idea of faith. And what that basically means is, you know, I'm going to address head on the things that you're doing because I myself did them. And it's a matter now of control. It's a matter of battling the devil rather than, you know, being submissive and, and being somewhat stoic. It is a matter of, of turning that around and appealing to the identities of these individuals. And also it's a matter of putting them back at the head of the church. And we still hear a lot of talk about that today. There are many churches um, across the region who put men at the head of them. They do not allow women to uh, to be in charge of the church or to hold any position of power in that, that uh, social structure. And uh, this is how religion began to adapt. And it is how religion began to take root in the region. It embraced that sense of patriarchy. And uh, it began to pull that into the church and reaffirm that men were indeed the head and uh, that this sort of sense of, you know, God loves everybody. God does love everybody, but he loves everybody in their individual particular roles. And once that was settled, um, that's how, again, religion began to take root across the entire region. Okay, now I'm going to enter into kind of a scattershot of different things, because there are a couple of different aspects of what I've just mentioned that I want to draw your attention to. First off, I hope that you can see, uh, this is something I called attention to in the other podcast series too that I have on this channel, but I hope that you can see that everything I've just described forms the two sort of sides of the American political landscape to the present. On the one side, we have um, what eventually will become fundamentalism, and that is, you know, springing out of this, this uh, God is not something that we can understand, and that turns into something like the Republican Party as it is in the modern instance. This is not the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, that was a very different one, and there's a long story there, and we'll, we'll cover that a bit in the next episode. And on the other hand, the, you have Enlightenment thinkers. Um, these are people with very different ideas of, of, of government, and these are not irreligious people by any stretch of the imagination, but they have, again, a very different approach to it. And this turns into those more liberal style individuals and what we would today think of as the modern Democratic Party. This is, again, not the Democratic Party of somebody like Strom Thurmond, who was a self-proclaimed Dixiecrat. Uh, but those two strands of thinking manifest in that particular way. And you can see some of that begin to emerge, some of it, not all of it, uh, but some of the genetic structure, speaking metaphorically, emerging at this time period. So that's thing number one. Thing number two is the, the church, yes, even though it began to subsume women and, uh, and those in bondage to men, it also began to preach a kind of uh, uh, patriarchal responsibility to those individuals. Um, it advocated for men behaving in ways 
that uh, would emulate, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, how God would take care of, of individuals themselves. Because if men are supposed to be the head of the church, that means that they should uh, show kindness and patience with those in their care. So it advocated for that particular approach. Now, that's not to say that that always worked. Again, if we go back to Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass extensively complained about people who had uh, religion. He said that he would prefer an irreligious master any day over somebody who had religion. So you can see that, that that's clearly backfired, at least in his experience. But this is one of the ways in which um, religion sought to sort of balance those, those things out. So that's thing number two. The last thing I want to briefly address, at least to kind of give you an overview, is out of this particular movement, yes, you have a lot of people who are saying God is mysterious, who cannot be understood. Um, and this meant that people did not have to be trained to speak about God. Rather, they were inspired. They could just stand up and say, you know, God has inspired me. I'm here to tell you what he has to say. Because from their perception, that's also how those who wrote the Old Testament were inspired. Um, and so that became, to some degree, the Baptist faith. It, you know, it was this almost completely egalitarian faith where everybody could stand up and, and preach, again, with some overtones eventually of men being in charge and women not being allowed to, you know, to speak out in, in such a way, or, uh, again, slaves or, or anyone of that sort. Basically, men were allowed to, to um, say, I'm inspired by God. And that's slowly changed as well, but that, you know, that gets away from the point right now. For those who did not like such an open structure where anybody, no matter the qualifications, could just stand up and speak about um, God, we get to Methodists. And this uh, Methodists were founded, I'm not going to go into too much of the history, but I just want to give you a sense of the overall structure. Methodists were founded to return the faith to some amount of training. So we had, you know, maybe not necessarily a full Anglican or Catholic style uh, training, but these were individuals and there was a hierarchy uh, who had been trained into that hierarchy and could uh, speak authoritatively about it and intelligently and at length about it. So whereas the, the Baptist faith, this is not to say that people would not speak intelligently in the Baptist faith, but whereas the Baptist faith would allow people to, you know, to be inspired and to stand up and say, I'm, I'm a leader, um, God has chosen me, I'm here to talk about God. The Methodist faith would say, you know, people are inspired, but we're going to sit down and really study the word. Uh, we're going to do so in a calm uh, rational way. So it, it kind of bridges between, again, this, this concept of God is unknowable and, uh, well, God is knowable if we just study hard enough. That gives you a little bit of a sense of, you know, Baptist and Methodist and the American South. Catholics are really not widely known across the South. They, they are known in parts of the South, uh, but there are historical reasons for that. So places like, for example, where the French were, um, that, you know, Catholicism was a bit of a big thing there. And we can still see that into the present day um, in those areas. Okay, the very last thing I want to share in this particular episode is I always like to educate people on millennial thinking. Because millennial thinking, is, it's, people always say, oh, you know, we're, we're in the end times. But if you look back in history, people have been saying that for a long time. A very long time. So some of the individuals that I've been talking about, uh, they have this sense of millennial thinking, the end is here, it's coming at any moment. I always give the example of William Miller. William Miller, uh, and you know, he, he thought that he had calculated, properly calculated when the world was going to end. And, you know, we're jumping forward a little bit here past the, uh, the we're just jumping a little bit forward here, but um, he had calculated the end of the world, it was going to be in 1843. 
And he convinced a whole bunch of people to sell their belongings and to come meet him on a hill because that's where, you know, the end of the world was going to start and they were all going to be raptured and, and taken back. Well, I, I'm making this podcast in 2021 and clearly the world did not end in 1843. So William Miller said to his followers who had, again, sold all their belongings, oh no, I'm so sorry, I forgot to carry one or you know, something to that effect. It's actually next year. It's the same day, same time, but it's next year. So they all left. And uh, next year, some of them came back with them. And uh, again, same thing, 2021 today. And, uh, you know, we're still here. I point that out because, again, people seem to think that millennial thinking, this type of the end of the world is impending. It's coming any minute now. Uh, it's just going to happen. Look at all the bad things. That is not a new idea. And as you read and study about the American South and study uh, some of these ideas that I'm mentioning inside this podcast episode, I hope that you will see that uh, a good number of the people who were writing about this uh, are people that that have these ideas. So these ideas have been widespread. They've been handed down for many generations. And that's just one of the things I like to call attention to um, to illustrate that this is not a new concept. And that brings me to the end of this episode. In this episode, I just try to set out some groundwork and give some background on religion in the American South and to show you that the South has not always been an extraordinarily religious place. But I've also started to show you how it began to become a religious place and to give you some of the history of how that change began to take place. With that groundwork set out, now we can understand better how religion is manifested into the present and why it's so very closely linked to uh, the politics. And those are ideas that we're going to cover in the next episode. I'll see you then. <laughs>